Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Philacrosophy podcast with Penn head coach Mike Murphy. Murph, fired up to have you on the show, man. How you doing? Doing great, Jamie. Thanks for uh, having me on again. Excited to, uh, to catch up a little bit. Yeah, it's August 31st. It's uh, the, the, on the precipice of another recruiting <laughs> class and more importantly, on the precipice of lacrosse back, fall ball. Penn lacrosse is back. How excited are you after this uh, pretty much two-year hiatus? Um, I guess on a one to 10 scale, uh, 11, maybe. (laughs) It's so crazy to think of like 2019, you guys had really taken this incredible step, had an amazing season, lost to the eventual national champions in 2020. You're, I don't know whether you're top five or top 10, but you were like just doing it again. And then it was taken away from you. And the crazy thing is, you know, the kids that were like sophomores or seniors or the freshmen from 2019s or seniors, you, it's almost like, you know, you blink an eye. You always know that freshmen turn into seniors before you know it. But this is a weird way to have it happen. Yeah. And in this case, they, they kind of hyperspaced from from freshman year to senior year and, and stuff. But, you know, uh, we have a couple more good classes that have come in behind those guys and got a couple of fifth years that have stuck around uh, for this year. So I, I really like this group. Uh they handled themselves extraordinarily well uh, throughout last year and, and all the ups and downs that we went through. Um, and I think we ended up in a, in a pretty good place emotionally and, and otherwise. Uh, and right now there's a, a ton of positive energy in our locker room. And not only is recruiting kicking off tomorrow, but our first workout is tomorrow. So uh, wow. a, lot of, a lot of anticipation. And uh, today is the calm before the storm. So good, man. So um, I got a question. What did how did you keep your team engaged 
and find that balance of not too much. You know, we were talking about this a little bit before the call, but but like, you know, continuing to think about Pound Lacrosse and to, to get better in, in ways that were practical and smart and um, that kept that, you know, kept it fun sort of because it, it had to have been kind of depressing for everybody to not play lacrosse for a couple of years. Yeah, uh, no doubt. And, and you hit the nail on the head. The, the number one objective was fun. Um, and the number two objective was improvement. Uh, and I would tell you in 30 years or however long I've been doing this, uh, I've never been around a team that improved as much as we did last year from February until, you know, the end of April. Um, and a lot of reasons for that, you know, we weren't obviously doing a lot of sky reports and things like that. Um, but we did keep it fun. You know, uh, we didn't do any conditioning, obviously, you know, we still lifted and, you know, we, we set some goals and things. We scrimmaged inner squad with refs most of the weekends. And, and so I think, um, you know, iron sharpens iron type of thing. So I think that allowed us to improve focusing on ourselves and, you know, making the scrimmages fun and enjoyable and practices, we're upbeat, you know, played music and, and things like that, which we've been doing for a couple of years. So mostly I just give credit to the seniors. Uh, you know, we had, you know, two fifth year seniors last year as well that came back and, and went through that and, and their ability to maintain, you know, and choose a, a, a positive attitude uh, throughout all that was extraordinary. Adam Goldner and Jojo Biddle were fifth years that, that returned to Penn and, and, you know, kind of got dealt that hand. And then the other seniors as well um, that went through that, uh, um, two of which are back now and two of which are at other places and, and three other guys, they just, they handled it ex extremely well and they had the most to lose. And so when those guys are, are being mature about it and, and going about it the right way, it was really hard for the younger guys to, to you know, kind of veer off and, and feel too sorry for themselves. And, you know, as soon as we got the news from the Ivy League back in February, we took a little time out. We gave guys a week or a week or two off and, you know, we had some optional workouts and stuff. And then we came back in kind of early March and said, all right, you know, you know, we're going to get after this and we're going to try to play some games. We almost played Drexel and, you know, couldn't quite get Delaware and some other people to play us within that radius. But within what we were able to do, we were very productive. Uh, we played Cabrini and we had a lot of fun and got a lot better. So. That's awesome. It kind of, um, in, so, in a weird way, it, it actually just boils everything down to a love of the game and just loving to be with your team and to play the game. Totally. I mean, and you think about, you know, start with why and Simon Sinek and all these other things. Uh, for me, at least, and that's why you and I are still involved in this um, after all this time, it's purely love of the game. Like I keep looking at the stick uh, above your shoulders. I want to play with that right now, you know, uh, the, the way the ball feels in the stick, the, just walking down into the locker room just now and seeing guys, those things are energizing for me. And they're all part of my love for, for this sport and this process and things. And, and that's what it was. And, and I think the fun feeds that love for the, for the game. And, and we focused on that and ourselves and each other. And we had a positive experience in, in a challenging situation. So if you look at 2021 and the way you guys played and the way you said, you know, we, we made, I don't know, you said something like we made as many, as many improvements as we've ever made with a team or more. So yep. um, how, like, can, give me an example of what was a little different about the way you, you went about that um, due to the circumstances that created a better output. sounds like. Yeah. I mean, if you think about kind of our normal routine and we're all these coaches, I think are very routine oriented 
um, you know, Wednesdays are about, you know, this, you know, certain install and game plans and things like that. And Thursdays are about this and Fridays are this and Tuesdays are that. Um, we threw all that out the window and Tuesday, Monday was about getting better and having fun. And then Tuesday was about getting better and having fun. And then Wednesday, you know what I mean? So like, instead of focusing on how we're going to defend, you know, uh, Princeton's offense, we just focused on getting better at our defense. And when you do that throughout the preseason and every Monday through Friday, instead of just focusing on yourself in the preseason and on Monday and maybe Tuesday, the, the improvement's going to be more significant. And, and we did some, some different things. Um, some of it is what we call technical, which is more individual based, and some of it is more tactical, the, the team concepts. Um, and, and so we were somewhat specific about what we were getting better at, whether it was recoveries on defense or kind of two-man games on offense. Uh, we were fairly specific with some of that stuff on occasion, but by and large, we just went out there and, and played and competed offense against defense or team against team. And that, I think, really led to, you know, both the improvement part of it and, and the fun part of it. The compete part. I, I figured you were going to say that because you almost can't, it can't be fun if you're just doing drills and it's not competitive. I mean, I don't want to say it that black and white, but over the course of time, you yes. need that competition because without it, it just becomes a little bit of drudgery and you don't get the same look, right? How did you, um, you know, leverage competition to teach and of course the fun part happens along along the way yeah well i mean the competition part on saturdays was pretty intense mm -hmm. um, uh you know just because of the the you know not the consequences but the um you know situation yeah. you know we put on our jerseys and had to build a up little, all of it yeah yeah all that officials and, and stuff but during the week it was more um, competitive, like offense against defense, you know, yep. uh, and we would keep score and, and do things. Sometimes we'd bring down core power to practice and give out, you know, we, we have this thing called Stanley cup where we'll do best of seven, you know, in a scrimmage or, you know, best of, of, you know, whatever, or first offense or defense first to, to uh, 11 or something. Um, and we'd give out core powers for that and just kind of ramp up the intensity. And, you know, sometimes the loser team would do the ball hunt or carry the, winning teams equipment back to the locker room and, and different things like that, just to, to ratchet that up a little bit. Yep. But essentially it was just pride, you know, uh, the, the offense and defense going at it. Um, or it could be, we have four tribes on our team, teams divided into four sub teams or tribes. Yep. Uh, and so some, some they would compete in, you know, four on four, six on six, seven on seven stuff. Um, so anything we do to make it competitive, we did that, you know, more often than not, probably three or four days a week in addition to the scrimmages. That's so cool. And I think, I feel like, um, everybody knows it's fun. Um, but I feel like sometimes as coaches, we like to try to, um, control an environment to, for the sake of accomplishing something. Like if you want to work on recoveries yep. in a drill, you can, you can, you can teach it and you can fix it and you can stop it. You know, when you get into a competition, you can no longer do that yet. That is what a game is truly like, which is why the word game-like sometimes I feel is, is thrown around based on situations that you'll see in a game. But really the game-like has more to do with it's up to the players to figure it out. Totally. 
totally. And then, you know, I remember at Dom's Hall of Fame, guys were like joking about that. Like Big Dog was there, like, you know, I'll figure it out. Like, talk through it, you know. Uh, and and the more I think about that, the more I think that's applicable and, and sensible in terms of, of the way we recover, the way we, you know, play offense. And we, and I, I think you mentioned this book on one of your previous uh, podcast, the inner game of tennis. Yes. Um, I heard you mention that sometime in the last couple of months, I think. Yeah. Um, so we read that as a staff two summers ago. Um, and one of the net results of that is the conclusion that there's more than one right way to do most things on the cross field. Mm-hmm. And so as long as you understand that, and it's not like my way or the highway, or, you know, everybody's got to shoot overhand or, you know, we can only do it this way. Um, now there are wrong ways to do most things on the cross field too, but for us as a staff to um, embrace the fact that there's more than one right way to do it, I think is kind of what you're talking about. You yeah. know? And then the game like situations, are, you know, every situation is different and, you know, in certain situations we might want to recover this way. In other situations, we might want to recover that way. Neither one of them is wrong and going through the situations, playing those games is a better teaching thing than trying to, you know, create a, a smooth groove of one singular right way to do it. Totally. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be different every single time. The guys have to figure it out themselves. Totally. Totally. If and, you're running so, some offense, and what I said, if you're running some offense, that's, you know, got to be a goes to B goes to C and I got a week to prepare for that. I can probably disrupt something along that line there. If you're just teaching guys how to play offense then it's like water and it's going to go to the lowest point and it doesn't matter what we do defensively, you're going to probably get a good shot off. Exactly. It's really cool. And I, I love it. And I'm sure that's why there was so much development because, because the athletes are competing and they're figuring it out. And then you can watch the film later and explain, and, and just like the inner game of tennis to actually be able to see it later gives exactly. you this understanding. And, and if one kid is like getting it done, but he's not getting it done in the classic manner that you, you right. would have thought he should does right. that mean he sh- that he's wrong right right like doug knight was so unorthodox then he ends up being player of the year he shows up to virginia and people are like who's this guy and then after a couple months and a couple years like oh, oh. that like fosbury flop you know i love that example uh you know that that was just the wrong way to do something go over the yeah. go over the bar backwards it was totally unacceptable and then all of a sudden the guy's you know world record holder Doug Knight's floppy arm pads still might not be, you know, standard operating procedure, but I think they're going to come back in. Just going to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Wait, Hey, you mentioned um, that you uh, and your staff read the inner game of tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to hear how you use that um, and how you continue to um, in your coaching and the way you think view the game. Cause I found that a, a game changer for me and um I think it's really cool that you guys did that as a staff. Yeah. I I read it probably 20 years ago. um, And I would say one of the things that shapes the way I coach is I took a a bunch of sports psychology classes at UVA under this guy named Bob Rotella and a guy named Tom Perrin. Um, And and so I think that very much kind of gave me a different perspective for coaching in terms of how kids are receiving what we're saying. Um, and so when we read the inner game, of, when I read the inner game of tennis initially a, a long time ago, and then we revisited it um, last summer, summer of 2020, um, I think it, it, it probably made us a little bit more deliberate in how we think through some of the skills 
Um, and you just, you know, think of some of the examples in that book where a guy's, you know, teaching somebody how to, you know, hit a ground stroke and really kind of internalize what it feels like to hit it the right way. And that's what really resonated with me is that, you know, like, you know, we had a kid here a couple of years ago who ended up playing a lot as a freshman and then didn't play a lot as, or as much after that. And he was a left-handed hockey kid um, who was bottom hand dominant, surely. And I think, you know, guys like that, when we try to make him shoot overhand, we made him worse. And I said that, I said something to him about it after the fact a year or two ago. I'm like, that was my fault. Like, I apologize for making him shoot overhand because that just, that wasn't the right thing for him. Other people should shoot overhand. Certain guys that, you know, spray the ball and there are certain kids that need to shoot overhand more often than, than other kids. And, and, and that's the thing. Like everybody is different than the way they do things. Like, you know, the way you play attack is, is different than the way Doug Knight played attack, you know, both lefty attackmen, but stylistically, you know, uh, a little bit different. Joey Sankey different as well. And so I think for us to appreciate some of those differences and to coach kids differently, both yeah. in terms of technical and tactical, but also just the way you talk to kids, you know, uh, I think it's very important that we understand, you know, how kids are receiving things. And I think the inner game of tennis kind of forced us to think about that more and then talk about that as a staff. And, and I think probably do a better job of having things resonate with kids when we teach it, you know, uh, you know, for me to say, you know, I don't know, get top side on a dodge that every kid hears that a little bit differently. Some kids don't know exactly what I'm talking about. Or we talk about leverage on a dodge, you know, here at Penn, most of the kids think that's a finance term, you know, <laughs> We're talking about trying to get daylight to the goals. So um, I think the inner game of tennis really helped us, you know, coach in a way that was probably better received from the players. I hope um, we'll see. We had only played one game since then. So, yeah, so. right. Yeah. It's interesting too. Cause like it, it really get, I've been really into this whole uh, free play concept, which is essentially just free plays when kids go off and do it on their own. But in your practices, if you're, if you have a competition and you're letting them win or lose, it might as well be free play, right? It's, 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 it's up to them to win or lose it. Mm -hmm. And what really resonated with me in this book was that it was in free play where you could begin to play without thinking. Yeah. And if you're thinking, then you can't play well at the same time as think. So if you're thinking about what coach wants me to do, where I'm supposed to move, what offense we're in, what we're supposed to be doing, and you're thinking about all of that, there's just no way you can like do that and read the defense at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. And, yeah. that, and that's the process, you know, like a freshman comes in, like we have to teach them some stuff. Yep. Like a freshman can't come in, just not think and just fit in. So and we're lucky as a spring sport, but I, I agree. We want to get our guys to the point by certainly by February where they're doing everything they need to do on a lacrosse field. You know, we played two way middies, you know, um, for one of those guys has to be able to play defense, clear play offense and ride without thinking too much. And so, yeah. you know, the, the term I've probably used with our staff more than any other in the last two years and maybe going back further is simple. Like it can't be too simple. Um, and I think because it's the, like you said, the situations are so different from play to play that adds the complexity right there. If we can simplify the, the concepts we like our guys to use offensively and defensively, the, they have to interpret all those situations and that gets pretty complicated so if we simplify the, the foundation of it, then I think they think less and play better. Exactly. And, and I think that's where the value of film is because yes. 
You can let people make mistakes in real time and just let them play through it. By the way, they might just play through it, but then you can show them later on film, hey, why this is actually probably a better way to, to think about this. And it becomes super obvious. 100%. And sometimes we learn, you know, like we're watching in film on Monday after a scrimmage or whatever the case may be. And we'll say, well, you know, and Coach Abbott does a great job of this. And so does Coach Aketa on our staff. They'll stop the film. Like, what were you thinking here? And the kid will be like, oh, you know, uh, I thought it was a fake slide. I'm like, oh, great point. Good point, yeah. And hesitation, great, good, great play. I thought you should have moved the ball, but you did the right thing, you know? Uh, yeah. And so I, I just think that dialogue is is helpful for everybody, the players and us, and we all learn. And and you hope you continue to improve by having those conversations, even in season, mm -hmm. when we get really caught up in scouting reports and game plans and stuff like that. Hey, um, give me um, an update on like what book you guys read this year or some of the things that you have been doing to try to prepare and learn and continue to sharpen the saw, so to speak. Yeah, um, we didn't read one this summer because we were on the road recruiting, yep. um, you know, and so uh, I think for us, I don't know if it's a product of uh, inner game of tennis or something else, um, but just kind of continuing to refine what we're doing on defense and on offense, um, you know, and probably in the clear as well for that matter, uh, in that vein of, of simplification. Um, and I think the other thing we've started to do is uh, kind of tweak the way we practice. Um, we were talking just today, uh, um, you know, looking back 10 years when the Ivy League or even five years ago, we were limited to group numbers. We could only have groups of four or six, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. And that's no longer, but mm -hmm. trying to get back to some of the smaller group stuff so we can do more teaching. I think we have um, a strong staff. And so the more time that we can spend with our players, I think the better fall season we're going to have. And so we're talking about now having the midfielders come out to the field, you know, um, defensive midfielders, uh, offensive midfielders, et cetera, and spend an hour or less while the attack and defensemen are in, in the, uh, in the weight room and then flip-flop those guys. Um, so we just, you know, have a, a higher concentration of coaching, um, doing some things like that. And, you know, I think the other thing that we've been, you know, kind of, you know, uh, I wouldn't say experimenting with, but some of the leadership stuff that we do, um, you know, we've, we've got, a, I think, a strong group of leaders and a strong senior class with, with two fifth years coming back. Um, just having more, uh, kind of open conversations about leadership and, you know, what is effective leadership and how do you go about it and things, uh, uh, you know, I don't think that's a textbook process. Some people right. read books on it and, and I read books on it a lot, but I think it's more of, of an open dialogue and figuring out what we're trying to accomplish as a team and what is the leader's role, what are the leader's roles within that and, and just being more kind of open and, and communicative about what we expect of our leaders, so. Yeah. Really cool. Um, and in terms of some of the specifics of what you're trying to do with, let's say, the offense, um, you know, how are you evolving it and yet at the same time keeping it simple? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of that for us is just based on personnel. Like we will recruit the best players we can find and then tweak our offense and defense around it as opposed to recruiting kids that can play in a one, three, two or a pairs or anything else. Like we, we just want to recruit the best players we can. Um, and so a lot of that for us is going to be figuring out, you know, what is the best offense for us to play? 
within the kind of simple conceptual kind of motion offense that we've been playing for the last couple of years um, with Coach Abbott. So I think for me um, in the fall, it's about one, just laying a basic foundation of how we play, two, figuring out our, our personnel and you know, you know, who's going to start an attack for us potentially, although we don't put starters together really until, until October and we're getting ready to scrimmage. Um, and then the third thing is just getting to know the freshmen, um, getting to know what kind of motivates them, how they respond to different things. And, you know, we were saying before about every kid is a little bit different in terms of, you know, how they play and how they're most effective. I think they're also different from each other and very different now versus even five or eight years ago as to how they receive feedback. Um, you know, I would say half our team 10 years ago when I got here, 12 years ago, responded better to negative feedback than positive. It, it, it altered their behavior, improved their, their player behavior more so than positive reinforcement, whereas that is not the case at all now. You know, there might be one kid in the class that needs a, a kick in the butt to get them going, uh, as opposed to, you know, 10 years ago, it was probably five kids out of 10 that would respond better to, to, you know, yelling at them or whatever the case may be. And so just getting a sense of the freshmen, you know, how they respond to criticism and praise and constructive um, feedback and things like that. I really try to get to know these kids a little bit so that I can effectively coach them for the next three and a half years. I think it's pretty interesting too, the way kids are coming in now, they've got vastly more knowledge about, the game and about skills and about stuff. like it's insane. You watch like there's sixth graders that are doing stuff that, that honestly guys, you know, would, you know, high, higher level division one recruits weren't doing in like 2013. Totally. My, my, our youngest son is a sixth grader. He's 12. And he's watching, you know, I showed him Mikey Powell doing a finalizer in, you know, 2002 or whatever it was. Uh, and so these kids are watching all these videos, watching stuff that you have. He plays like uh, he plays with like 15 kids on a street. Like I was going to video it and send it to you. Yeah. Like uh, three or four mornings a week with some kids in our neighborhood. Uh, Mark I've, heard about, that. I've yeah, heard about that game. Yeah, it's sick. It's sick. Uh, and they all plays show up. They put the goal out there. It's, uh, you know, just playing pickup. I've seen street. videos on that, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, so they see it online, they see it on you know, social media, see it on stuff you're doing, and they just go out and try it. It's free play is so productive. It you is. Know, uh, it's the best way to get better. And, and the most important thing for me, for these young kids, and even for our guys, but certainly for the sixth graders and the, the eighth graders and the 11th graders, is continue to love lacrosse. Right. Like so many of these elements in our sport are leading to burnout, like, you know, personal trainers and playing lacrosse 13 months a year, like kids get hurt and they like it less. And so whatever they're going to do to get better, but love lacrosse more, I think is what we should be encouraging them to do. Totally. It's funny too, because with the free play thing, um, I mean, listen, it's how we grew up. You know, my story is I played endless free play the same way you did. I was more of a soccer player than anything else. In fact, I only, lacrosse was March, April, May for me. Really? Yeah, they threw the goals away. I mean, what was I going to do? Like, well, right. soccer game over there. And I used to just go over to Brown. I lived near Brown University and I would walk over. There was like pickup games going on every day in the summer. And I just played, I was just playing sports. Like I didn't really care what, it would have been anything. It would have been fine. Right. Yeah. But then with the evolution of coaching, we just learn more and more and more and more. And we break things down, you know, and it's yeah. like, and it's not bad. Breaking things down is good, but 
sometimes when you think about breaking down riding a bike into one-legged pedaling drills, maybe it's not so good. <laughs> right. Right. And there's a time and place for it too. Like if, if in a kid's development, if he's getting a, a breakdown in a, in a choreographed walkthrough of how to do something, and that's 10% of his time with the game, then that's great. But if, if we're coaching them and there's some great coaches out there doing some great stuff in, yeah. on an individual basis, but that should be a, a small part of a kid's lacrosse life. I think, For sure. Know? And I think as you get older, there's, there's a lot of reason to, to, to be able to work on the accuracy of that type of stuff. But, but, but um, it, you know, combined with the evolution of, of coaching, you know, of yours and mine and all, you know, but, but at the same time was this professionalization of youth sports. And so, so therefore, and, and that was in good spirit too, mostly it was, let's, let's make this better. Let's make this even yeah. better. Let's make it even better. Let's do more. And, um, and so the, the sandlot has, has been removed. And right. the fact is, is that, you know, with the athletes that I've been working with, I've, I've literally, the ones that have played a lot of free play are off the charts skill-wise. Right. Ridiculous. Right. Insane. Like how, how does that guy even do that? And, but the, but I guess the, the more important way of putting it is everybody's kind of got these, this off the skill, off the charts ability to do skills. The question is, who actually has the composure, the confidence, um, and the sort of fluency to do it in, in real moments, in real games. Totally. And I, you know, that takes, um, I guess, experimentation in the free play moment and then the courage to do it in a game, whether it's, you know, behind the back shot or a skip pass or a bounce pass. Right. Um, you're not going to try it for the first time in a game, no. you know, uh, but if you try it in free play and then, you know, certainly the right environment, you know, if you go to a place where they don't let you throw the ball sidearm, like probably not going to throw a behind the back bounce pass, but you know, <laughs> I, I do think I'm always, I'm always saying to the kids, I'm always like, so, Hey, when are you getting your behind the back license? <laughs> That's true. Like if you're, if you're good enough, you're going to get the license to do that. If you have a license to do it. It usually doesn't get revoked, but you can't like get that license at pen practice. No, you got to have that license where all of a sudden it's like, okay, that's in the back of the net. We'll, we will go with that because it, it exactly. actually is um, a really hard thing to defend if you're, if you're confident and good enough at doing it. Exactly. Um, so, but um, it, it's, it's, it's this, the sad part is that a, it's been sort of removed, but B that most people don't actually even get it. And so what you realize with your 12 year old is like, this is the best thing. And if I watch the video of it, it blows me away on what they're thinking of. Yeah, totally. What their, what their ability to read and influence in the course of the game. And those are the two words I've been thinking a lot about lately. The ability yeah. to read and influence a play. Influence through deception and communication. Yeah. Are really what separate good from great. Right. Right. Huh. That's the whole game really is reading. All these things are happening at one time and being able to influence it towards your direction. Right. With totally. your posture or where you're looking or defensively with your communication or with your communication, whatever. Um, but most people would rather just go shoot. Right. Right. Exactly. I'm going to, I'm not doing three by, I'm going to go, I'm going to go shoot 150 balls. And it's, I'm not saying shooting isn't important. It is. Yeah. Um, but I'm choosing decision-making and learning how to read and influence. Um, yeah. The other piece is a lot of people will feel like, well, I mean, I'm not going to go play with kids that aren't awesome. Like I'm, I'm, I, I'm only going to play with the best competition. And right. it's funny because this, this one kid I work with, it's going to hear from a lot of people. 
I got more video on him playing against his little sisters and their friends. Really? And the stuff you see him do in regular games, he's just doing against them. And it's, it's not particularly physically competitive, but it still yeah. allows him to practice reading and influencing. Right. Totally. And try to experiment with different things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, totally. it's great to play a pickup game with high level, but Murph, think about this. You and me, you know, grew up in, uh, as in our twenties and thirties in athletic departments, when we would play noontime hoops, What's the, difference, what's the difference between you playing when the basketball staff is out there versus, and you're on their team versus you're on with the soccer guys and all the other Olympic sports other than basketball. Right. Right. The answer is you pass the ball and hopefully you play defense and get yourself a fast break layup. If the hoop guys are playing in the, on your team. And if you got the exactly. soccer guys and everybody else, you can go out and be right. Larry Bird. Totally. Totally. And then, you know, I'm going to try to learn something from the basketball guys. Like, get some rebounds, play defense, set a pick for them if they want to try not to screw them. Yeah. And then like the fun part about noontime hoops, besides just the competition and and outlet is like, you can learn something and take it out onto the field and coach it. You know, like the space. I I learned more from my 20 years of playing noontime hoops than just about anything. Totally. Yeah. I agree completely. So um, switching gears. um, What, what are you thinking about as far as, you know, for Penn in 2022? Um, give me an idea of your vision. I know you just don't really know, but just kind of like how you would think you want to play. Um, I think we're just going to kind of continue the way we played in 2019 and, and into 2020. Um, play with pace, play, you know, kind of selfless, uh, offense and defense for that matter, the ball flying around. Um, I think we're pretty simple. You know, we don't do anything too extravagant. Um, we give the kids some, some leeway to do some different things. Um, we, you know, we like, um, we like when the ball moves quickly. Um, you know, uh, not that we don't, you know, dodge, we dodge to start our offense pretty consistently or, or set a pick. But um, and if you watch the San Antonio Spurs play when they were good, yep. uh, I would like to think that it resembles that a little bit. Um, and on defense, you know, uh, kind of the mirror image of that, um, you know, we're pretty basic uh, man-to-man, you know. Uh, uh, I would like to think that our calling card on offense is – uh selfless and and talented uh and on defense i'd like to think it's selfless and tough you know we play pretty hard and you know you know dive in front of balls and dive for the end line and we're physical inside and stuff uh um we'll see i mean we made a couple weeks to our defense going into to last year which we never really played some minor stuff that coach abbott adjusted um in again in the vein of kind of simplification so I'm excited to see how that plays out. Um, and I, I, I think we're pretty balanced. You know, uh, we have a couple of good face-off guys. Uh, we have a couple of good goalies. Um, I think we're pretty deep on offense. Uh, and I think, I think we're pretty, pretty deep on defense as well. You know, got, um, you know, a couple of good players, each position, close defense, pole, short stick, uh, two ways. So I, I'm, I'm really excited. I don't think there's any glaring weakness in what we're doing. Um, I think we're, pretty simple and we play hard and fast so you mentioned uh, a couple times two-way guys two-way middies 
Um, how much do you guys play? Do you guys play, you know, how do you, how do you work that in and what's the advantage or just in disadvantage of playing two-way biddies? Yeah. Um, the general advantage is that, well, the way we do is we essentially have one two-way midfielder on the team, on the uh, field all the time. So we'll have two, three guys that rotate through that spot. There'll be times when we have two, two ways out there, but usually it's one. Um, and the advantage quite simply is that um, we only have to sub two guys off when we convert from defense offense to defense. And so we really try to ride hard and, you know, commit to that. And so it's a little easier to commit to the ride. Yep. Um, and, you know, I can't tell you how many times we've been scored on in 12 years here and, and beyond when people are playing subbing games, five on five, uh, you get your last guy in there. He's trying to match off, run off to the midline with their guy. And they dodge five on five and they score. And we don't, you know, uh, for whatever reason, I think there's a geometric spacing reasoning for it, but uh, it's a lot easier to score five on five than it is six on six. Um, and maybe that's because we're overstructured with team defense and responsibilities. Um, so either way, it just, it allows us to take away transition more. It allows us to sub quicker um, and commit to the ride. And then on offense, you've got an offensive guy coming down the field and transition every single time. And the flip side of that is true as well in terms of substitutions. If the other team wants to sub all three guys, then they're going to simply choose between giving us a six on five or keeping an offensive midi on the field and trying to stop that. And so it creates a little bit of stress for the other team every, every time. So interesting. I, I, it seems like everybody always talks about wanting to go two ways. Yeah. And most people don't. Right. Because at the end of the day, they're like, well, I just want to get my best offensive guys out there for this possession. And I, I just actually want to get my best defensive guys out here. And right. that's where the rubber hits the road. Totally. Um, do you just have to live through that or you've recruited well enough to have both? Um, well, clearly part of it was um, was recruiting. We kind of committed to this a long time ago. We, we actually played exclusively two way middies in 2013, 14, and a little bit of 2015, we, had, we didn't have any, well, I shouldn't say we didn't have any, we had like a couple offensive middies, like one or two D middies, but we played two, two ways and a pole. And then, you know, a fourth attack when we're an offensive middie uh, with that. And then we kind of got away from it. Um, but then we recommitted ourselves to two way guys in 2019, playing one or two at a time. Um, so there's a requirement that you recruit some of these kids yeah. uh, to begin with. So like, you know, this year we have a fifth year named Ben Bedard, um, you know, who's clearly in our top two or three short stick defenders on our team. And he's clearly in the top two or three offensive middies on our team. And he's six foot three or six foot two and 215, 20 pounds. And he can run and he's strong and he's got great hands, plays man up. Like, yeah, there you have it. Yeah. You, know, <laughs> you just got to go out and find those guys and trust the system, you know, uh, but it's, it's easier said than done. Um, and it's not for everybody, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, totally. I only say that because a lot of people like want to run, they want to push pace and all that. And then when you sort of, when, when you look at the Spurs, you know, they were just dialed in the half court. Totally. You know, totally. And, and, and so that's, that's the, that's sort of the tricky part. Right. Um, right. It's, you have to kind of pick how you want to play. Yeah. Um, and for us, we want to play offense like that, but we don't want to be platooned and have only offensive players that can do that. So yeah. it's important that you get a guy like Ben Bedard or a kid like James Shipley that are kind of our top two two-way guys that can play selfless skilled offense, um, but can also get up and down the field. So um, 
a question on this. So as far as not giving up transition um, and sub games and all that kind of stuff, don't you think that giving up transition has mostly to do with bad shots and turnovers? Uh, four on threes, definitely. Um, five on fours and six on fives. Like it's just a matter of converting, you know? Uh, and so if I'm going to pick up a ground ball or there's a rebound or whatever, say it takes two seconds from the time you turn the ball over to the time I pick it up, you know, and there's a, a second or two of you figuring out who's going to have the ball. Yeah. And if I run say from five yards inside my restraining box to five yards inside your restraining box, that's 50 yards. And you have to run, depending on where you are on the field, you know, about 30 to some 30 some yards to the box. And then the guy coming in is going to run 30 or so yards into the defensive end. I've got a shorter path, you know? Uh, and so as long as I can run 50 yards faster than you two guys can run 60, then I'm going to beat you in every single time, mm -hmm. no matter, you know, however you want to do this. And so however many guys you're subbing, as long, and you're going to have a little bit of a, a head start on me because the offense is outside the defense. But, but on average, you know, we're going to, if you're going to sub two guys off and, and leave one guy on, and we're going to run all three of our players down into the offensive end, we're going to get a numerical advantage most of the time. Now, it's not going to usually be a four and three unless it was a bad shot and we get out of the top off the shooter. But unless, you know, unless something happens or the ride is very effective that we can't create our, our transition, we're going to get numbers. And it's just a matter of whether we, and our tax job is to make a decision whether we want to shoot that ball or take that chance or not, which is really more game situation than it is anything else. So I want to hear your opinion on that, that's that statement um, from an analytics perspective. Do you have any information as far as stats goes, as far as um, are there more transitional situations given up? specifically like what the numbers would say and secondly is it is your scoring percentage you know so much higher in the in, in situations that with, with in transition that it's worth pushing it and shooting it anyways because I sometimes I wonder about that like fact is is you know if you're going to score a layup it's a layup you probably got to take it you know but if you're but but I think a lot of times in transition like no matter how good you are, you just don't finish them all the time. And then all of a sudden it's reverse transition totally. and, and, and reverse transition probably, you know, and I, I don't know, that's why I'm asking the question about these analytics is like, you know, you're probably giving up reverse transition is going to be a higher square percentage than the transition in the first place. And no anyways, I was just curious how analytics fit into your thought process and how you play. Yeah, we use analytics um, and we have, you know, for 20 years since I was an assistant here, mm -hmm. um, and that used to pick the basketball coach's brain, but I don't have anything on the quality of the shot or the percentage of the shot in transition based on, on what you're talking about. Um, but I would tell you that from a qualitative standpoint, it's just the attack's job or responsibility to make sure like all we're ever trying to do uh, on offense, transition, you know, ride back, six on six, man up, is to generate a great shot. Right. Um, and, and we're not, I, I don't care about how many shots. Like we want to play with, at a pretty healthy pace, but at no point are we trying to get to a certain number of shots. Yep. We want to score as many goals as we can. 
but the number of shots is irrelevant to me because I think there are bad shots. We don't want to shoot bad shots. We don't want, at no point do we want the pace of, at which we play to affect our decision-making. And that's why practicing fast is important because at some point you can think more clearly at a fast pace than you did in the beginning. And so we, we practice pretty quickly and our level of decision-making will increase over the course of the year. Um, so the attack would have to, you know, if we have a, a left-handed long stick cutting down the field to his right hand, you have to know whether you want to jam that in or not. You know, uh, in terms of that actual situation, you know, did we just play, you know, a minute of man down and then a minute of all even defense? You know, uh, is there, you know, a minute left in the half and we're up three? Like all those things have to be in the attackman's mind and go into the decision whether to feed that ball or not. Right. Um, you know, uh, so it's really more situational than it is, you know, we're putting the pedal down in transition and jamming right. the ball or shooting it. Um, we just want to get a great shot. For sure. And with this, in the shot clock era, I think things have changed a little bit too, as far as like, you know, um, is it worth it to, uh, is it worth it to push it? Is it more worth it to hold it? I mean, I think back to the uh, incredible quarterfinal game that I know was a heartbreaking loss for you guys, but it was one of the best lacrosse games I've seen in a long time um, up in Hartford, right? You get you guys against you. Yeah, was it 1918 or 20 to 19 or something insane? Yeah. 19, and I was like, here you go. You got to be able to score like, you know, 19 goals to win a game. Right. Totally. right? I mean, that's incredible. And if you think about, you know, it wasn't like against a crap team. It was against the eventual national champion. And, and you guys probably scored, from an efficiency perspective in six on six in the forties, I bet. I don't even know, but it had to be because it wasn't like, I, I don't remember the game as well as I'm sure you do. And I'm sure there was some transition going on, but there was a lot of half field. Wow. Neither team could really stop each other at that totally. level. Totally. You know, uh, uh, yeah, I agree completely. Neither defense was playing great that day. And, and, you know, the last possession we had, you know, you know, we had a midi that threw the ball back, to um, to our long stick, and it was just a bad pass. Instead of throwing the ball forward to our attackman, who then could be in that position to to make a decision, you know, go or you know push the pedal or or pull it out a little bit and stuff. Uh, um, and you know, we just we we didn't make a great decision in that situation um, for whatever reason. But that, that's a good example. Like like, and at no point do we feel like we need to get transition to score especially right. in the last few years, like we've been pretty good six on six. Um, but if you can get a layup just because a team's subbing or a team's falling asleep, you know, uh, yeah, totally. like, test the water. A lot of teams don't even test the water. Like we want to be able to test the water without risking a turnover. And that's where getting the ball in the attackman's hands is really important because they can see the field a little more composed and they generally are the better decision makers based on the way they've been, you know, coached yeah. and stuff like that. So and they're not exactly. So What's that? And they're not exhausted. I mean, they, they, they're, exactly. they weren't just playing defense, right? I mean, they actually, exactly. you know, and they have a better sense of the tempo of the game and all that kind of stuff. But my point on that was simply, you know, when you think about the analytics and you think about the scoring and efficiencies, it's like, okay, well, if we're scoring at 40 something percent and we, well, we might as well grind them out and score because totally. there's an element, you know, it's like a running game in football. Eventually you wear the team down and you can do whatever you want. Right. And the more right. if you don't wear them down and maybe the scoring difference isn't as high as you might've really thought, you know, I mean, certainly there's different, you know um, you know, not every transitional opportunity is the same. And that's, what's so important to kind of think about. 
totally. I mean, you got a six on five and you got a face-off guy coming down and like, yeah, that's not good. If you've got a, a you know, we have a four on three with a, a two-way midi with the ball on a stick, like coming yeah. out on a defense, like we're going to push that every time. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if the guy saves it and comes back the other way and we give up a goal, I'll, I'll take that, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Live yeah, it's just a, it's about decision making and knowing the situation and stuff like that. Uh, and there's a lot <clears throat> a lot that goes into it. And we we don't coach that stuff from the sidelines. We try to teach our guys kind of how to make those decisions on the fly so they can just play like you're talking about and not worry about running the right thing or the wrong thing. Not thinking about it too much. All right, yeah. switching gears. Um, I want to, You mentioned earlier. You mentioned the word burnout. Uh, and you, it was in the context of, you know, basically kids playing, as you said, 13 months a year. Uh, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this. There's a guy I had on the podcast that spoke at the IMLCA convention last year, Tony Holler. You familiar with Tony Holler? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Cats. Yeah. Um, incredible. So for people that don't know who Tony Holler is, I highly recommend you follow this guy on Twitter and listen to, you know, anything this guy says. I, I, I uh, spent some time with him this summer and he's just really one of the most brilliant guys. He's a yeah. he's track coach. He's a chemistry yeah. teacher. And he's kind of like turned a lot of um, a lot of uh, sort of the standard operating procedures um, on their head um, yeah. and um, in a really cool way. Um, <laughs> I think his opening statement in the IMLCA address was if you're a coach that has a conditioning test, you're a bleeping idiot. And so he's not afraid to sort of speak his mind. But um, the reason why I'm asking about it is because um, I think that what he values is performance. He's like, I want to prioritize performance, which means game day is the priority. Being healthy, being rested. Um, on game day is more important than anything else. Any anything else you could work on is not going to be as important as having your best players healthy and rested. Totally. Don't and, burn the stick. And, and, and don't burn the stick. And and then and and um, and so he his whole model of preparation um, sort of feeds into that, um, along with prioritizing speed development over conditioning because that conditioning will detrain speed and essentially. You know, if you can raise everyone's speed from 14, you know, from uh, 18 miles an hour to 20 miles an hour, your 80% is also going to be higher and you can kind of go 80% all day anyways. Yeah. So these are some interesting things, but the, the burnout part I thought was really interesting too, which was that by prioritizing performance, by giving, by prioritizing rest and recovery and sleep at the end of the year, when you need to be fully engaged, fully fired up, healthy, rested, not burnt out. Um, how do you sort of uh, address that stuff? Because it's such a long year and it's easy to be fresh and go hard, hard as hell in, in the fall and even in February, in the beginning of March, but then April hits and, and the repetition sets in and people get a little bit more tired, a little more irritable, um, everybody. And I'm just curious from your perspective, um, how you sort of try to keep your athletes fresh in the context of this year that you're trying, that, 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 that's really long. Yeah, I would say um, going back probably four or five years, we've been following this undulation model where we have a hard day, easy day in terms of physical taxation. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the fact that the Ivy League limits us more than other leagues in terms of what we can do in the fall and preseason, I think that helps us a little bit as well, you know. Uh, 
Um, and then we actually got on the phone, right? We had a Zoom um, with Tony Holler a year or two ago and kind of, you know, started to use more of his stuff a little bit, certainly in terms of um, some of the speed training and, and things like that. And that really resonated. And, you know, he and I have, have talked a couple of times since then. Um, but it's, it's, it's really about keeping things fun and keeping guys, it, treating them more like, you know, I forget what his phrase is, but, you know, uh, more like a thoroughbred and less like a pack mule or something along those lines, you know, uh, uh, racehorse, not workhorse, maybe, or yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to that, you know? Uh, and so for us, like, you know, we use laser timers, we time guys in forties and, and things like that regularly. And, um, that's a kind of a big part of who we are. We do speed, you know, uh, on a regular basis, we're going to time guys tomorrow when we get back and speed is important to us. And, and, you know, trying to play the way we play. And then speaking to Tony um, recently, I, I think that stuff's really important. Um, you know, uh, and so I, you know, maybe it's because we're at an Ivy League school, but I, I just believe in what he's talking about. And, and I think we play better when our guys are fresh. I, you know, uh, I believe that and I've evolved, I'd say somewhat significantly over the last 10 years in regard to that. You know, uh, I think conditioning is part of our sport. I, I, I don't fully embrace um, all of that, honestly. Uh, yeah. And I think part of the issue is that the average football play is 5.2 seconds, and then they have a 35-second play clock or whatever it might be, and our average play is 40-some seconds, and the average whistle stops play for five seconds. Um, so it's not he's, – he's basing this for football, um, mm, I don't think so. I think he's, he's, he, he bases it for basketball and even the track events that he has, yeah. you know, yeah, he but, was a basketball coach, yeah. but a lot of what he's talking about with feed the cats is specifically designed for football. And so he and I had this conversation, uh, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, but like for us conditioning, like if we just have our guys run four 40 yard dashes and then a two way middies going to like, we had a long stick a couple years ago that ran six miles in the game. Like, you're not going to get prepared to run six miles by running four by forties. No, totally. Um, so I think I, the, it's, it's not, um, the forties aren't conditioning you for that. It's the practice. It's when you practice play. Exactly. And that's what we do. Like we don't do, we don't condition our team and we'll do a conditioning test once in a while, usually once a semester, just yeah. to keep them accountable over the summer. Um, but what we'll do is on those undulation days and we have work days, we'll have a little bit more volume and it'll be sure, yeah. you know, less rest, rest and stuff like that. You have to play the game. <laughs> totally. You know, uh, yeah. and I think if our guys are in shape to go through practice and we go from drill to drill and we scrimmage and do all that stuff yeah. like that, that gets them in good enough shape. But if the, exactly. if their attention is on getting faster and yes. they don't know they're getting conditioned, that's kind of how we approach it. Like for sure. Our yeah. guys don't know they're getting conditioned. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. We practice at a certain rate, you know, Totally. And I think like, you know, there, there's no way you're going to be your, that long stick midi is in, in, in the first Saturday in February, when you guys have a scrimmage of any kind, it's going to be where he actually like is going harder than he's gone since last fall when you did that. And then the next Saturday, he's going to be better. And then the next Saturday and so on and so forth. And, and only, only if we dial him back, Yes. Um, that same kid, like he didn't practice on Mondays. Like yeah. he didn't like it, but Can't. like we just held him out. Yeah. You're not practicing. So we've really dialed back our Mondays, you know, in season, we really only have one kind of intense live day, uh, maybe one and a half. 
Uh, and we also kind of keep an eye on how much full field stuff we do versus half field and, and things like that. So, um, so that whole, yeah, the whole thing is evolving and there's some science to it. Tony and people like that have helped a lot. So, yeah. So cool. Well, yeah. uh, last topic then is uh, it is uh, September one tomorrow. Um, and um, obviously you can't talk about any of these athletes, but um, if you can just um, share with us sort, sort of your thoughts. And I know we talked about this on the last podcast, but just updated thoughts on kind of like what you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, we, we touched on a lot of this earlier, you know, play two way middies. So that for us is, is uniquely valuable. Um, you know, every year, you know, we want to bring in a, a strong left-handed, you know, uh, attackman like yourself, uh, a good face-off guy and a good goalie. Uh, so those are kind of anchors for us in each class. Um, and then after that, uh, it's really just about finding good players that are good students um, that we think are good kids. You know, uh, we have a pretty strong culture in the locker room and, and for us making sure that kids are, you know, going to be good teammates and represent our program well. The integrity part of it is, is really important. So uh, finding kids that, you know, kind of believe in the things that we're, we believe in in terms of the education and life after college and, and things. So uh, I do think this, we work very hard at it. And, you know, there's a stack of uh, letters over there that are going to go out in the mail uh, here shortly and, you know, spend all summer driving around and watching kids play, which was a lot, a lot of fun compared to last summer. But this is, it's somewhat self-selective. You know, mm. the right kids end up at the right places more often than not. And I think we get really caught up in the recruiting, rightfully so, because if you don't do it well, you know. You know Nothing to talk about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, uh, um, but I, I do think that by and large, these kids uh, have an idea of what they're looking for. You know, they're at this point pretty well trained in a lot of this. Uh, and conversations with coaches and, and parents and stuff. So for us, we, you know, we know what we're looking for. We have, you know, pretty good idea of who's who that we've seen. You know, there's a bunch of kids we haven't seen, I'm sure, but we have an idea of, you know, who we're going to talk to and how good we think people are. And I just hope that it it plays itself out and kids don't try to wrap this thing up in the first week and they go out and see different schools and, and kind of take their time and and uh, be deliberate with it because it's it's obviously a big decision for these kids. Big difference from last year to this year. I mean, last year it did seem to get wrapped up within a couple of weeks. There was yeah. no live recruiting whatsoever. Right. Um, yeah. You know, how, how big of an advantage was it to be able to watch that much film versus not watch that much film? Or And how much bigger of an advantage it is to be live with people where you probably don't have as much time to watch film? Um, Do you? Yeah, I mean, we still watch some film and kids send it to us and we'll watch games, but like you just get such a better evaluation in person. Wow. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's night and day. It's, you know, it's, uh, you know, seeing the kids, you know, move and they put the foot in the ground and yeah. getting a, a real view of their athleticism and little things like, you know, stick fakes that you don't always see on film or, you know, a kid like looks a guy off and, and does things like that, or, you know, backdoor cuts that you don't even see on the film, how a guy's playing his man, you know, we call it play your man on when you're on offense, you know, a guy starts to turn his head and yep. those little things that those pressure points kids pick up on, you know, how they interact with their coaches. Uh, it's, I mean, we were all in the same boat. So it wasn't like there was an unfair advantage for somebody yeah, totally. in 2020, but for this year, it was, it was a lot more enjoyable, even though it was more work and, and yep. hot and stuff. 
uh, it, it just felt much more uh, real and, and, you know, uh, authentic to be sitting there on the sidelines watching the kids play and and see how they respond to different things. And it was it was great. It was fun. Yeah, totally. You you just can't tell how athletic somebody is on film. It's like when you're preparing for some great player and then you're like, oh crap, that kid's way more athletic than I. Thought. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, you can't tell. But at the same time, the sample size, you know, bias is what happens sometimes when you just can't see as much. You know, so you probably watched more actual hours of an actual player when all you had was film. And that's why I was sort of wondering about that balance. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, uh, I think it's, it's, it's all relative. So whoever we're recruiting against probably had the same advantages and disadvantages because it's totally basically a zero sum game, but um, you know, pros and cons, I think, you know, we're coming out of this learning, you know, how do we use zoom? Like this is, this is productive here. We'll recruit with zoom a little bit and yep. uh, still recruit with some film, but but by and large, it's a little more back to normal and, and yeah. having people on campus, having families come in here in the next couple of weeks will be uh, fun as well. So let's go campus tours. Love right? it. Right. You know, when you're thinking about feed the cat stuff, the last thing on recruiting is, man, I really wish a lot of these uh, players um, would 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 really prioritize performance by prioritizing recovery and rest and sleep, because <laughs> this summer, probably more than ever kids were playing so much. It was, it was actually insane. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, there was a set of established events before COVID and then things blew up and some new events kind of popped up in during COVID. And now all those events are back, the pre COVID events and the COVID events. And they're all like crowding the space, Mm -hmm. you know, and these kids feel like they have to go to all these things. I I feel badly for them, you know, uh, And they, they just don't. And it's like, I mean, you're exactly right. Sleep and burnout and all the stuff, these kids, you know, over training, you know? Uh, so, you know, hopefully they can take a deep breath. I don't know what the solution is structurally, but. Cause there's some kids that like literally probably like played, you know, 28 days of 45 days in the summer and they feel like nobody knew who they were, yeah. <laughs> which is like the saddest part. Yeah. And then the whole point of it was to get recognized and noticed and recruited mm-hmm. and you don't even know if it worked or not. Yeah. Know? Crazy. But, um, you know, like you said, I mean, things generally work out. And if you prioritize over the course of time, being the best prospect you could be, being the best student, the best kid, the best athlete, you know, the best across player. we talked about, you know, both of our opinion on how you do that, which is a lot of free play, you know, mm-hmm. there's a really good chance that you will be found if you st- sort of st- stick with it. Yeah, hundred percent. If you can focus on what you control, getting yep. better and loving the game, yep. the rest of the stuff will take care of itself. You know, keep the faith. That's right. That's right. Is that? Hey, uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on, man. It was just awesome to talk lacrosse with you again. I'm so fired up for the Quakers to be able to uh, get back in action. Yeah, my pleasure, Jamie. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Certainly enjoyed it. Uh, hopefully, we'll see you uh, somewhere along the way here this fall or sometime in the spring. For sure. Awesome, man. Take care. Cool. All right, Jamie, see ya.